Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, excited to look into God's Word together today. And uh, we've, we have been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, and we have been taking it verse by verse, or section by section, topic by topic, and this morning we're going to take a little break, and it's this morning and the next two Sundays, for three Sundays we're taking a little break, but we're still tying our topic to the Sermon on the Mount, and therefore I'd like to read a section from the sermon as we begin today. And we're jumping back to chapter 5, and I want to read the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 10 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm supposed to say a phrase. Uh, oh, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I didn't grow up in a traditional kind of (laughs) liturgical church, so that's kind of a newer thing for me. Thank you for participating. Uh, Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look into your word today, that you would be our teacher, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our understanding to what you would have us to see and learn. And Lord, may we live in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at the sermon and uh, what we're trying to do for this short little series in the middle of the sermon. It's not quite the middle because we're, the Sermon on the Mount runs from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 7. But we have gotten into the part of the sermon where Jesus is laying down instruction kind of what I would say expanding the law and giving definition to the law and when we began to read these words and look at the sermon we should understand some things and and it's important enough for us to step back and and look at first off that these things have been challenging through the history of the church in understanding How do we apply these truths to our lives? The sermon, how are we to understand it? So there were some, like uh, Origen in the 200s, who actually cut off body parts. And there's some debate as to whether that really happened, but I think it did. He cut off body parts mainly because of chapter 5, verse 29, which says... If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is a very literal interpretation. 
I see that most of us have all of our body parts, so maybe we haven't been following this as, as well as we should. Uh, but there, it is part of the desire to really interpret, to live according to this sermon. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, advocated that we get rid of the police department, we get rid of military, and this all came about because of verse 39 in chapter 5 that says, But I tell you, do not resist the evil person. And so Tolstoy thought, if we take these words literally, that the, the one way that we defeat evil is not to resist them, to, to give in to them. And even Gandhi kind of took this kind of interpretation as he t- used it as this non-retaliatory response to uh, the government. But as we look at this sermon, we recognize that there are challenges to our interpretation, and I want us to understand the sermon in a way that we can apply it to our lives. And so taking a a moment here and stopping and thinking about the sermon and what it is calling us into is important for us in living it out. Another one of the... uh, common ways that has been interpreted, the sermon has been interpreted down through the history, is that it is a set of laws and requirements, and that much like the Old Testament law, which gave requirements to the people, and they tried to fulfill the law, and in their trying to fulfill the law, they realized that they failed, and that they were sinners, and they needed to call upon God for deliverance. So too, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving us this kind of perfect law, the standards which are so high that we can't meet and we realize our need for His grace. All of these approaches have elements of truth to them. But I want to uh, encourage us to think about the Sermon on the Mount in a different way. I want us to think about the Sermon on the Mount as a call to Christ's people. To the people that he is forming as a part of being in union with him through his sacrifice and through the giving of the Holy Spirit that we can be these people. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he gave it as a a manifesto, as a charge, a call to be this kind of people. Now notice as we read the Beatitudes, you have broken, weak people. You have people who mourn, people who long for the kingdom of God, for for righteousness you have people who show mercy not characteristics of the world where there is power and strength but people who are broken and who are in need people who are peacemakers this is what makes up the kingdom of God this is what God is seeking to bring forth in the hearts of his people and so when Jesus gives these instructions he's actually asking us to live from a new heart. Live in obedience to the ideals of the kingdom. And that we often think of them as laws. We often think of them as things to do. 
But Jesus is not primarily interested in our behavior. He's interested in us living from the truth and the reality of the kingdom. One of the, there's a movie that uh, I really like that kind of captures this in kind of an interesting way. And it's called The Ultimate Gift. It's an older movie and maybe you've seen it. But it's the story of a very wealthy man who has billions of dollars and uh, his family is in shambles. He doesn't have any relationships with, with his kids and uh, he ends up dying. And his plan is to will his children all of his billions of dollars or billion dollars. But in order for them to do that, they have to follow these certain tasks and go through and jump through these hoops. And he tells them what they have to do. And, but when they are finding out about these tasks, they're never told if they're actually getting anything. And so actually the one son who is kind of the focus of the movie, he's kind of brash and kind of self-centered. He uses people. He, he's never really had a friend. He's never really given of himself. He's only thought about himself. Uh, he's not sure that he wants to go through the steps and he always wants to know, well, what am I getting if I do it? And they're never going to answer that question. They're just saying, well, if you fulfill this job and you fulfill this uh this task, then you can move on to the next task. And then you do that one. And the wonderful thing about the story, of course, we're as Americans kind of captivated by it because it's about a lot of money and we're always thinking that if we get lots of money, then everything falls into place. But really, there's a deeper story here. There's a deeper message in this movie. And it is that this man begins to learn about his father what his father was really like, and the task and the, the, the little responsibilities and jobs that he has to do teaches him to care for people, to build a friendship, to do something for others and not just for himself. And at the end of the movie, he's totally transformed into somebody you might want to hang around with. Uh, it's a wonderful movie. But I think of it very similarly to the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, there is all of these high commands of obedience and kind of obligations. Don't, don't be angry if you don't murder. And I'm saying that murder means being angry with your brother. Don't call someone a fool. Don't call someone reka. Don't look at someone lustfully. Don't lie. Say the truth. Don't bolster what you say by qualifications. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by anything. You know, Jesus is telling us all of these things and we can think that it's talking about what we should do and we must just make sure that we do those things. But like in the movie, The Ultimate Gift... In doing those things, we find something much deeper, much more real, much more tangible. It speaks to our heart and changes who we are. And that's what Jesus is really all about. When he gives this sermon, he is not talking about behavior modification, which Craig has talked about quite a bit. It's not about behavior modification. It's about knowing Jesus 
living as Jesus would live if he were alive in your body. Having the same ideas and and dreams and hopes and love for people as Jesus would have if he were living in your body. So, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to us wonderfully because it's speaking to us as broken people. And the picture Jesus paints is a picture of new life, the path of righteousness, the building of our lives on a rock and not on the sand, as the sermon concludes in chapter 7. It is the ultimate life, and it is life from deep within. It is life flowing out of what God has done in us, out of our union with Christ out of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. In fact, we learn that we can't do the Sermon on the Mount by behaviors, but we can only do the Sermon as we encounter Jesus and Jesus lives through us. So Jesus is saying being a disciple is not about following rules. Jesus is saying being a disciple is about living in a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus. And because of that, things change in our lives. So how do we experience this change? How does it come into our lives? And that's what we want to think about. So there are two realities we must recognize as believers as we read the sermon. First, Reality number one is the invitation to live in the kingdom now. So many times I think that we read the scriptures in a certain way. We read the scriptures in what I would think is kind of a, a mechanical way, kind of, a, uh, kind of a, a way in which it's separated from us and these are ideals and we wish we would uh, put them into practice But like James says, we see in the Word of God the mirror, the reflection of ourselves, and then we walk away and we forget. And we go on about our business and we do what we normally do. What the sermon in the uh, sermon is calling us to is to enter into the kingdom of God. To live in the kingdom of God. Don't let, don't walk away from that mirror. Don't see yourself and then think, well, something will happen someday. The, this, this sermon is calling us to be absolutely committed followers of Jesus and live in the kingdom of God. Now, we must realize that this kingdom of God, this rule of God, is the place where God's rule, God's will is done and where it is not thwarted. Would you not agree with me? Wouldn't you think that the kingdom of God is where God's rule is accomplished? It's not questionable. It's not changed. It's not thwarted. His kingdom did not come into existence when Jesus came into the world. God's kingdom has been ongoing since the beginning of time. And if you go back and read Psalms, especially Psalms 145 to 150, these are beautiful Psalms. Because in everyone, read all the way through, read them, because it celebrates and recognizes the existence of this eternal kingdom. 
God's kingdom is alive and well and exists and encompasses all of creation. And it is where God's will and purpose is accomplished. Psalm 145.13 says as much. It is not something that we as humans produce or something that we can really hinder. The kingdom of God, God's reign and God's rule is something we're invited into. And if we ignore it, we will be hurt. The kingdom of God's rule only has a couple of realms where his rule is temporarily uh, not in complete control. There are a couple of realms where this kingdom of God is not governing and guiding everything. And those realms are on the earth. These are the social realms of our world. We wouldn't say that God's kingdom and God's rule is absolutely going on there. The political realms of our world, we wouldn't say that God's absolute reign and rule is going on there. And in the individual hearts of people, we wouldn't say that God's absolute will and reign is going on there. These are realms which are equated with on earth in the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer that's in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this phrase, and I'm sure you remember, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a recognition that something is different on earth than from what is going on in heaven. And we as believers are taught by Jesus to pray that God's kingdom, God's rule, and his reign would happen here on earth as it happens in heaven. And we pray that because we recognize there are places where God's absolute will are not being carried out. So, when it comes to God's will being accomplished... The desire in this prayer is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a recognition that there is a place in this world where God's will is not absolutely being accomplished here on earth. Once we see this as the case on earth, we have a much bigger picture of what God's plan and purpose of the gospel is in sending his son into this world. Therefore, when Jesus says beginning of the gospels all the gospels repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in matthew in mark he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand it is not that the kingdom is coming into existence god's kingdom has been around it is eternal it is before time and it will last forever But what is different is that this kingdom has a new accessibility by us on this earth through Jesus. When Jesus preaches this sermon and he's talking about the coming of the kingdom and the establishment of his people and the initiation of the new covenant on the earth, he is calling for people to come and live in the kingdom. Therefore, when Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, he does not mean we should pray for the existence of the kingdom, but rather that God's kingdom would 
take over at all points in our earthly existence where his reign and his kingdom need to be expressed. We must remember that this is not automatic. This is not a one-time decision that what Jesus is calling forth from us as followers of his in the Sermon on the Mount is to be the the people of his kingdom, to allow God's reign and God's rule to be alive and well in each of us. This means that when we speak of Jesus and the gospel... We're not primarily talking about salvation and making sure we're going to heaven. And we're not just having our salvation and acting good and doing what he would want us to do in anticipation and waiting for that day when we get to heaven. No. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling a people to himself to live in the kingdom now. And what we can define as the kingdom is the place where God's rule and God's will is accomplished. And there's a recognition that that will and that rule is not accomplished on this earth at this moment. But the prayer is that his kingdom and his will would be done here as it is in heaven. And that takes you into that request. It takes me into that request. The request is that we as his people, as followers of Jesus, in union with Jesus, would walk and live and demonstrate and follow for the will of God, for his kingdom and for his purpose. And that everything in our life would flow out of our relationship with God and our honor and our belief in Christ and our following of Jesus. That we would be his people to live in his kingdom now. Not for some future day, but now. That we would be his, fully devoted to him. That means that Christianity cannot be thought of as just being saved and then enjoying the fruits of that salvation and going to church and giving of our tithes and serving in the ministries. All of that is good. But it's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about seeing that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of our lives. We trust him. And then in every way, in everything we do, in every attitude we have, in every effort of our body... We live in accordance to his will and to his kingdom and to his purposes. Now, many times we have to admit that our Christian lives are made up of doing Christian things, but that just doing these things don't lead to a transformed life. Why is this Sermon on the Mount so important? Why must we see this as an invitation to live in the kingdom of God now? Because our normal process of thinking about Christianity is that we come and we trust Jesus and we go to church on a regular basis. We read our Bibles and we pray. We do the things that we should do. We serve in church. But then we're really about building our own kingdoms the rest of the time in our, in our lives. There needs to be a recognition That God has called us into living in Christ's kingdom. And that this 
encompasses everything. And that too many times we think of Christianity as a part of our lives, a area that we are committed to. And then we do all the rest of the things in our lives for ourselves and for our families and for our kingdoms and for our houses, for our futures. And that's what we do. But what we must see is that what Jesus is calling us to is really living in the kingdom. Living where God's rule, God's will is preeminent in everything. It seems hard to to get a hold of, I know, but kind of reminds me of uh, buying Legos. Uh, I know this is a little jump. Uh, but when my son was small, we would buy these bags of Legos. And whenever we found them at the uh, garage sale or something, hey, yeah, we get Legos. And we get Legos and we throw them out on the floor and we build little houses and little cars and little forts and things like that. We would tinker with the Legos. And then one year I happened to go to the store and saw this Starship Lego spaceship. And it looks so cool, you know. I got to buy that. And so I brought that big Starship Lego ship home. And we had it there and we opened it up. And there were so many little parts. And and there was so much to the directions to try to put that Starship together. That it always just laid in parts in the box. And we went back to tinkering with our little Legos, building little houses and little cars and little things that are simple. I never really put together that beautiful spaceship made out of Legos. Well, I think sometimes we as Christians tinker with Christianity in the same way. Sometimes we get comfortable with building little cars and little houses and, and little neighborhoods and little forts. And that's easy to do. When there's a spaceship that could be built. There is a life that can be transformed in every way. To the will and the desire and the rule of God. And that we have left it sit on the shelf. Because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to mess with that kind of transformation. We don't even know exactly how it works. We can't follow the directions. But God's dream and God's desire is for us to enter into his kingdom. His kingdom where his, re- his will rules. Where his purposes are sure and profound and comprehensive and they cover everything. Jesus is looking for those kinds of people. And the danger for us is just tinkering with the things that we're comfortable with. So the question for reality number one is, will you take the invitation to live in God's kingdom now? And part of doing that, I think we'd have to really read the Sermon on the Mount over and over. We'd have to really hear what Jesus wants from us. Because it's not rules and regulations. It is a new heart, a new way of living that fleshes out the rule and the kingdom of God in our lives in every way. Reality number two 
is training is a necessary path. It's more muscle than battery. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving us very strong instructions. That is, do not be angry, do not lust, do not get divorced, do not swear by anything, do not resist the evil person, love your enemies. If you think those are easy things, you have not pondered them. And that is only in chapter 5. We still have chapter 6 and chapter 7 to go. What is essential in living these great truths, these God-honoring values, is living from the new heart. Now, the new heart and the new affections have been planted into us at conversion. But they do not naturally take over our thinking, our minds. They do not naturally shape our bodies. That takes work. That takes participation. That takes training. And that takes the exercise of our muscles. We can look in the New Testament, find in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to submit our minds to the Spirit for the renewal of our mind. That we are in chapter 8 verse 10 to submit our bodies to the transformation of our bodies. To holy purposes. And what this means is that area of this world where God's will and rule is not manifest absolutely at this time. Jesus is calling us as his followers, as his disciples... To live under the rule of Christ. To live in his kingdom. And that includes the changing of our minds. Because our minds have patterns of this world. Patterns of thinking that we have grown up with. Things that we do automatically, naturally. And our bodies have patterns. Patterns that we do, that we've grown up with, that we naturally do. I think about this every time I'm driving. And someone pulls out in front of me and I'm starting to say, what are you doing on the road? And I'm saying things I shouldn't say. Why do I do that? That's what I've always done. That's the pattern of my life. I'm driving almost automatically because I, I go to the store. I'm going to go to high V, and I'm driving. And all of a sudden I find I'm driving around in the parking lot at the church. What's going on? I automatically drove here and wasn't paying any attention. Well, we do that in our lives. We have lots of areas in our thinking, in our behaviors, with our bodies. Yes, we've been made new. We've been given a new heart. We've been transformed and made Christians. But that doesn't automatically change our minds. It doesn't automatically change our hearts. And what Jesus is holding up here is the need for real transformation in the lives of his people so that they live not on the basis of these old patterns of the world, but on the basis of the new life that he's given to us as his people. And that takes training. That takes exercising the muscles. This is not automatic. It's self-control. It's submission to the Spirit. So that behaviors change and that we line up with the desires of our new nature and the will of God in the kingdom of God. Following Christ often asks us to change our behaviors and to live in another way according to the will of God. And I'm afraid that we have been tinkering with that. 
Because as, as Larry Crabb says in one of his books, How People Change, we have big directional changes and we become Christians and we make those big changes and it makes us look like everybody else that's a Christian. And then we get into the pattern of just living at that point and we fit in with the group. And we're doing the things, we're going to worship, we're tithing, we're serving in the church, and we're doing those things. But it stops there. And then we invest in the normal things that we do. We build our own kingdoms. We satisfy our own lives. And yes, we have carved out places where God's will and God's purposes can be fulfilled. But we're spending our time doing our own kingdom. And what Jesus is calling forth from us is to enter into the kingdom of Christ, to submit to his will, and to begin training, to use our muscles to see the places at which we need to transform and change and have a heart for the gospel, have a heart of truth and love that overwhelms our normal course of thinking, that overwhelms the activities of our bodies. I remember this, I think about this every time I go to pray. Because my body has to be changed. It has to train. It has to, I have to exercise that muscle. And when I go to pray, it's not uncommon that after I've been praying for a little bit, I'm thinking about, well, I need to get up and I need to go do this. I need to go do that. I'm, I'm kind of wasting time here. This, is this really valuable? Is this really working? Is God hearing me? It's just going, is this really a discipline I should be doing? When in actuality, there's probably nothing as important in my life than praying. Spending that time before God. And yet my kingdom... My world, my body wants to get out of there. What's the problem? I haven't been working that muscle. I haven't been training my body in the ways of God's kingdom and God's purposes and God's plan. That's why it's so pervasive that Jesus says, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because he looks around and sees that God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's happening in us, in the lives of his people. He's calling us to live in the kingdom of God now. Not at some future point. And to live in that kingdom, giving ourselves to the will of God and the rule of God. Because what the world needs to see the glory of God's kingdom displayed in the midst of the world where his kingdom and his will and his purposes are not being accomplished. Yes, I know. Theologically, God is in control of all things. I'm not questioning that. But we must realize that God has given over in this world the opportunity for forces and other kingdoms to compete with his kingdom. And the question for us is, are we living for his kingdom or for some other kingdom? Are we training and exercising and growing and living in a way that we are transformed? Hearing, knowing that there is this obligation for change, 
that we need to take steps. We need to exercise our muscle. One of the pictures that I want to give you really quick is the picture of a, a man riding an elephant. Now, you've got a man riding the elephant, and he's giving directions to this gigantic elephant. This elephant's 6,000 pounds. There's no way that he could stop that elephant from doing anything. But that man has a purpose and a mission for that elephant. And it's not uncommon for that man to give direction and guidance to that elephant. Now, if that driver doesn't pay attention, that elephant's going to go off and do what he wants, find food to eat, look for other things that are of interest to him. But if that driver pays attention, manages the expectations, the directions, cares for that elephant, makes plans and purposes to train and guide that elephant, that elephant will wonderfully follow the directions of the rider. And in a real way, we as Christians have to realize that God has given us a new heart. And that that new heart is in touch with God and God has poured out his spirit in us. And that that heart can guide our thinking, can guide our bodies. And that it is a process of change that Jesus is charting out here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that one of the first things that we have to do as believers is to recognize God's call on our lives to live in God's kingdom today. Don't, don't set it aside. Don't think of it as insignificant. God wants his will and his purpose to be accomplished in us today. He's inviting us to live there. He's inviting us to train our bodies and our minds so that we are obedient, so that his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven, in your life and in my life. Hear the words of N.T. Wright as he describes the process of transformation. Change happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousand and one time, when it really matters, they find out that they are doing what is required automatically. Transformation happens when wise and courageous choices become Second nature. Jesus is calling us in the Sermon on the Mount to live from the heart, through the mind, and the body in the kingdom of God where God's will is done. This kind of transformation has begun in our hearts, changed by Jesus. And now we must involve ourselves in the process of new life, through everything that we do, through our minds and our bodies, to the glory of God and for his kingdom. A couple of questions. Are you open to new areas of change that God wants you to walk in? Are you looking for those new areas of change that God wants you to walk in? Second, notice natural responses in your mind and body that need to be changed in accordance with God's kingdom. 
And third, pray and ask God to help you with incremental steps towards transformation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord Jesus Christ, who invades our life and changes our hearts, gives us a desire for a new kind of life that is in accordance with your will and your rule and your reign. Lord, we need your help and your power so that we might take changes and we might grow and we might transform. We ask for your spirit to do that work in us. Open our eyes to the needs of change. Open our eyes to the incremental steps that can be taken. And help us to depend on your spirit to guide us in that process. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.